0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, social media at danproft, uh, as well as at Dan Proft show. And uh, boy, a lot of developments over the weekend, of course, uh, after President Trump's Friday afternoon press conference with the uh, full complement of uh, private sector CEOs, as well as infectious disease experts were introduced really to Dr. Deborah Birch for the first time. Uh, she was impressive, as has Tony Fauci been. Dr. Tony Fauci over the weekend uh, on CNN After the Saturday briefing, again, just trying to explain to the public and to the media, which is a more difficult audience, explain over and over again what is being attempted here by the administration, as well as to offer his perspective on some of the actions that have been taken around the country in big cities like Chicago and L.A. and New York and D.C., which is to uh, uh, move from public sector to shutting down private sector enterprises like bars and restaurants Tony Fauci on trying to flatten the curve.
3: You know, I've said many times, if you just leave it alone and let the virus to its own devices, it'll go way up and then it'll come down naturally over a period of several weeks. Unfortunately for our colleagues in Italy and in France and certainly in China, that's what happened. Our challenge right now is to do two things, is to prevent the new influx of cases, hence the travel restrictions, and for what we're dealing with right now is to know that we're going to get more infections, but blunt it so that we don't have that sharp peak, that we have more of a a smaller hump. And uh, to
2: the prospect of being criticized for overreacting, Fauci said this.
3: I might make a point that people sometimes think that you're overreacting. I like it, when people are thinking I'm overreacting, because that means we're doing it just right.
2: And in response to uh, moving from schools and colleges and businesses to shuttering bars and restaurants, as I mentioned,
3: Fauci said this. Well, I would like to see a dramatic diminution of the personal interaction that we see in restaurants and in bars. Whatever it takes to do that, that's what I'd like to see.
2: And, of course, the CDC issued a uh, a guidance suggesting that uh, gatherings be limited to no more than 50 people for the next eight weeks. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Victor Davis Hanson. He's a National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of The Case for Trump bestseller. Victor Davis Hanson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, between uh, Friday's presser in the Rose Garden to Saturday's briefing to the appearance uh, on the Sunday talkies by uh, infectious disease experts like Tony Fauci, do you uh, uh, have uh, a good deal of confidence in how the administration is responding to it? And 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 frankly, as much as managing the outbreak, managing the the media's uh, Uh, interpretation of the management of the outbreak?
4: I think they're managing the outbreak fine, but you can't manage the media because that's what happens in panics. And we're trying to find, we being Americans, the golden mean because every decision has a reaction. And if we are too lax and we get too much of the disease, and if we're too stringent when we don't need to, like we were in 76 then we we can cause a lot of damage by shutting down the world's largest economy, and people will die if we go into a depression and they may may more may die than from the virus if we have older people that can't get out to regular scheduled doctors' appointments or can't get needed medicines or we can't uh treat people that are in remote areas or we break down uh you know, food, fuel, you we can't do that because there's consequences. So we're trying to find the perfect mean. My only criticism is that a lot of the people that get on, I'm just speaking not as a scientist or statistician or a doctor, but as a historian, that when you look at the flu rates, historically we don't know how many people get the flu. We never do because 98% of the people don't get hospitalized. We only know the number of dead because that's, involves autopsies or coroner reports or hospitalization usually and therefore we extrapolate so when we say well 60 million got the flu and 30,000 so it's one in a thousand we don't know that it could be true but but we do know the coronavirus it's one of the few things that we, we're, we think we know but it's misleading by that I mean we're only looking at the number of known cases those tested or with such glaring symptoms, have been diagnosed, and then the known deaths, and the deaths are a finite number because, or I should say, a known number, because of autopsies and hospitalization, etc. And then we divide one by the other, and we come up with the lethality rate, and we say, ah, it's three in a hundred, and the flu is one in a thousand. Oh my God, it's twenty times worse, but we don't know that. And what that means for your listeners and for all of us is that when these tests get readily available, two things are to watch for. One, the cases are going to go sky high, but is the lethality rate going to go higher? That is, is the number of deaths per day going to increase at the same number of the cases? I don't think it is, because I think that most people get over this. And what, ironically, the paradox will be, with vast more cases, but not a commiserate increase in the deaths, we're going to see a lower lethality rate. And I think it's going to go down, as it has in China and South Korea, to less than 1%. And that should be reassuring, even in a panic, that there are more people have it. And final observation is, we had 10,000 people come in the United States in November, and we knew about this in uh, mid-November, the Chinese did. And then December and all of January, that was almost a million people. And out of that million people, there were, there had to be hundreds coming in that were exposed. These were direct flights from China, including Wuhan. And so I think there were people in the West Coast, especially, which explains Washington, California have higher numbers that were exposed to this. And this thing has been working its way through the population already. And and I think that's something to keep a, keep in mind that there are people who probably got this or were exposed and didn't know it or had a flu and thought it was the flu, but it sometimes they liked the flu, but it wasn't. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. And and so I think we've been doing this, doing dealing with this on the West Coast in a silent fashion for a month or so.
2: And and so uh, Heather McDonald writing the new criterion uh, says compared to what? That's the question should be. Uh, that should be framing every news story on the coronavirus is is that fair? Because there's uh, you know epidemiologists and doctors that have suggested that you know comparing it to H1N1 or comparing it back to MERS or SARS, other pandemics, uh, is uh, somewhat misleading, somewhat unfair, somewhat apples oranges. We shouldn't really obsess about those comparisons. Well, I just don't
4: think you should take. I I just don't think you take the 1918 flu and use that as a model, right? And told everybody it's not like the flu. And then you you tell everybody that only one out of a thousand die from the flu, but you and then you just come up with a number and say to the public, "Oh, sixty million people got the flu this year." and how did they get that number?" They got that number by saying either or, you know whatever the number of deaths were that they know, then they just multiplied it by a thousand because some model long ago showed that that every flu is different. So when some official gets up there and tells people of Ohio, There's a 100,000 people in Ohio got it, and we know they've got it. He doesn't know that. There's been five cases in Ohio, and therefore, we've got to do this and this and this and change radically people's lives. Okay, that may be sober and judicious, but it also is telling people there's right now, just based on the data, 2,500 people are going to die in the next 10 days, and most of those are going to be over 65, and what's the effect on people over 65 that hear that? There's 2 million of them in Ohio. Are they going to say, you know what, he just said there's 100,000 people that have it right now, and based on the data, 2,500 of us are going to die in the next week or so, and I better not go out to the doctor, the cardiologist, the nephrologist. Uh, I'm not going to go pick up that that prescription. I'm anxious, and that has a toll, too. So what we want to do in this crisis is find some golden mean that's almost impossible to find, but we've got to search for it that balances panic from from you know, wise wise uh, treatment and policy. And if she says, I want to have people panic or overreact, I'm not quite sure that's historically a right thing to do. We have a history. There's a lot of people who died through panics that were not justified.
2: Yeah, but although I mean, every incentive is right is to overreact because you're because
4: as uh, long as you don't destroy the economy and kill people in the process.
2: Well, right. But I mean, but
4: every
2: every overreaction, like we heard this from the governor in in my home state of Illinois yesterday, you know, we're by closing all the restaurants and bars. We're going to save lives. Well, that's impossible to disprove. And so there's every incentive to look to look like you're doing something and saying you're saving lives because there's no way to measure it. Victor Davis Hanson, when we come back, you've lived through many of these viruses and the public reaction. I want to get some institutional knowledge, some context and consequence from you. We'll have more with VDH right after this.
0: Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: We're back with Victor Davis Hanson, National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of the bestseller, The Case for Trump, talking about uh, coronavirus, of course, and VDH uh, wanted to start with uh, just a, a provision of some historical context and consequence from pandemics of this sort. It's never one-to-one comparison, but pandemics of this sort uh, that perhaps can inform the perspective we bring to dealing with COVID-19.
4: But I was, I was a student in 1976, and during the election year, a similar election year, we were told that the swine flu was sweeping the country. And it was going to be worse than the 1918-19 epidemic. We all had to get this new vaccine. We literally were told each week it's coming. It didn't come until Jimmy Carter was elected and it was in March. Then we all had to line up. I mean, we had to. Each department was given a quota. Get this number of students. I waited three hours at Sanford University. And I was vaccinated. I went home. I got the worst reaction I can remember for a week. Mm. And then I called my friends. And I said, I got sick. And then they gave us a warning and said, Jalombo. D'Alan-Barr syndrome has happened uh, in California. There's people have been paralyzed. There was almost 500 people paralyzed. And then we heard, and what did we hear in August? That the Fort, Fort Dix outbreak had left 200 cases and one person had died from swine flu. Now, that's an overreaction. And then there was an underreaction in 2009 when we knew that, that H1N1 swine flu variety was really lethal. It came up from Mexico. We left the border open. We didn't want to seem xenophobic. We didn't do anything for six or seven weeks. And we had millions of people got that virus. And somewhere between eight and 18,000 people died, yeah. including a 1,000 children. And I remember in California, there was even paralysis associated with some of the people who recovered from it. There's four or five factors that warp this whole discussion. And one is we're in election year. One, people are weaponizing this for campaign purposes. Three, uh, a third reason is it started in China, and China was duplicitous. By accident or a mysterious coincidence, it was near a weapons lab, uh, laboratory, level four. So the conspiracy theorists took off and said this was manufactured or China's not. We don't know. But we had the ingredients of mass panic from the very beginning. And then China didn't tell people that it was literally sending millions of people throughout the world, especially to countries that had close ties with it, like Italy. Anybody's been to Milan or Northern Italy. It's it's just a Chinese expatriate colony. And Iran and South Korea and, to a lesser extent, Seattle and the Washington uh, state, and especially the Bay Area. Though all of that together made people paranoid, and it caused all sorts of misapprehensions and some... Legitimate, some legitimate concerns, and that's where we are. And what Fauci said was interesting. If we didn't do anything, as we didn't do in 1918, it would die out. We have it. We don't want to lose, you know, 30, 40, 000 people over 65, and especially over 80. And that's what we're really talking about. Right. Of course. If you take that age rubric out of the data we have from Italy and China, and I mean, about 99 to 98 percent of the
2: people are going to recover. You started off against the historical context going back to when you were a student and through some of these other pandemics over the last, say, uh, 40 years. Uh, h- how do you see how we cope with something like this? Because there's a lot of people with, without any institutional knowledge or any desire for it that suggests that we're in an unprecedented place, and that's not really true. Uh, but the reaction, start- But the reaction is unprecedented, yes. I would argue.
4: Yeah, I think it is. And I think part of it is good and part of it's bad. Part of it is that we're living longer and healthier and better. So we've kind of said to ourselves, we've conquered nature and we all deserve to die at 90 in our sleep. I'm speaking at someone who's 66. Hmm. So we think that. But on the other hand, we look back and we make fun of past generations. They're racist, sexist, ill-tempered, illiberal, but we don't realize what they went through. And they, for them, getting up in the morning was a joy and they dealt with polio and they dealt with, you know, Spanish flu and people died. And they, they came across by trial and error with wisdom. And we use that folk wisdom hopefully for the good. So I think this, there's going to be some good that comes from this and that is a greater appreciation of the ordeal of the past and not to panic. And then to realize that all of our experts that are so data driven, the data is not always reliable. And there's certain common-sense things that we should have thought about a long time ago. Why in the world would you outsource 85 to 95% of your antibiotic supply to China, given the nature of the communist regime or medical supply? That doesn't make any sense. And why in the world would you keep telling people that you know exactly how many people died of the flu versus how many people had got it and then come up with a statistic to convince people that this thing is 20 times more deadly than the flu it could be, but we don't know that. You know, every year, six people die on average from a black widow and 60 die from bees. So we should, we tell people bees are deadly because they kill 10 times more people than black widows, given that 3 million people die of other causes a year in the United States. it's I mean, it's not to say don't watch out for bees and don't, not to worry about the 60 people that die, but when you say one is 10 times or 20 times more lethal, you have to keep that in the context that neither one of them is going to do wipe out the country.
5: What
2: else? What else? What that's else, important. What else do you see uh, us rethinking in the wake of this? When we get to the other side, rethinking how we do healthcare in America.
4: Well, I think the CDC we're going to take a hard look at it, and it says the Center for Disease Control. It doesn't say the Center for Obesity, or it doesn't say the Center for Gun Violence.
2: The opportunity cost so issues. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So we're going to look at these things and say, you know what? Don't be so utopian. Mm. You're not that good at what you do. You've got to look at exactly what your mission is and then fulfill it. Reminds me of NASA when the Obama NASA czar said that his chief mission was to enlighten people who were Muslims that we weren't going to discriminate against. That has nothing to do with NASA. And yet NASA doesn't have a regular track record lately. So I think we're going to look at these bureaucracies and say, you know what? Stick to the mission and Mm. don't go straight off these other. Another thing is, the United States, we we can't see it now because we're in the middle of a mass hysteria. But we're the largest oil producer. We're the largest food producer in the world. And we're the largest economy. People are going to look at China and they're going to say, I can't trust them anymore. They've threatened to cut off my medical supplies. They've threatened to cut off my antibiotics. And I'm talking about not Americans, but Europeans and other people. I don't want to trade with them. I'm going to stop this supply chain. And that's going to benefit us. A lot of industries are going to return to the United States. That's going to be a stimulus. Oil prices are at all-time low. We're both the biggest producer and consumer. So in the summer, we're going to get a huge stimulus from cheap gas and fuel during summer driving. We're going to get low interest or no interest rates. I've never seen that in my life. So major purchases are going to be basically interest-free. And what I'm getting at and his- historically, people get relieved when a pandemic or a war starts to taper off, and they spend and they get out. So I would expect, if we ride this out calmly, that sometime in between June and August, the country's going to take off. And uh, nobody can see that now. Because- and to say that is, well, you're underreacting, you're going to get people killed but historically, I think there's a good chance that's going
2: to happen. Yeah, the context and, and the knowns versus the unknowns, to borrow an old uh, uh, formulation, Rumsfeld formulation, is, is uh, lost in most of this conversation, which is why we talked to you. Victor Davis Hansen, National Review columnist, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of the book The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
0: Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, well, you uh, getting into March Madness? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the Iditarod. Uh, Thomas Varner of Norway grabbed uh, command of the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race on Sunday. Uh, reaching uh, Unalakleet. Shortly after 10 a.m., uh, 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 that was 25 minutes before anyone else reached the checkpoint where the race hits the Bering Sea coast and this anchorage to Nome, rod. You know, I had trouble deciding who to bet on this year because uh, Susan Butcher is uh, long since retired and Todd Palin, I don't believe, is racing. Um, Thomas Werner, yeah. This is uh, perhaps our new national pastime. Uh, the Iditarod racing and the interesting thing about it, per what I just said about Susan Butcher, uh, you know, male versus female. You know, the dogs are the dogs. Uh, Warner pushing through 12 hour run to take the lead. This is exciting stuff, isn't it? Uh, it uh, does prompt the question, what will our new era of entertainment be in the post Corona uh, post-corona, uh coronavirus world? This was taken out by Tyler Cohen. It actually is a bit thought-provoking. Uh, taken up by Tyler Cohen, who's a George Mason University economist. Uh, he uh, marshals the blog Marginal Revolution, which is very good, and he's a Bloomberg columnist. And uh, he writes, among other things, it's my personal hope people will start reading aloud to each other, much as the Victorians might have enjoyed Robert Browning's The Ring in the Book in a Family Circle. Audiobooks can provide a more individualistic version of this experience, but they still don't Seem to be enough to pick up the slack. Yeah, I, I like, uh, you know, Andre Del Sarto as much as the next guy. But I don't know if just Browning poems will be enough to uh, fill the void left by, say, basketball and baseball and hockey and bars and restaurants, for that matter. Uh, he uh, goes on, does uh, Cohen, to note uh, World War Two. In World War II, the U.S. government played a critical role in encouraging Hollywood to make cheery movies and it helped by not trying to force every actor into the armed services. Major League Baseball, our national pastime until it was replaced today by the Iditarod, uh, continued to hold regular season, continued to hold a World Series, you know, to distract people from wartime worries. Many top players, such as Ted Williams, were away fighting, but there were adequate replacements. And uh, the government knew that wartime drama could not be the only drama on tap. Actually, he makes a great point here. I hadn't thought about it quite this way, the temporary suspension of uh, our bread and circuses, uh, to borrow from Juvenal. Uh, the, the entertainment problem is a very real piece of the puzzle for minimizing the effects of the coronavirus and keeping Americans not just in good spirits uh, but healthy, writes Cohen. The very worst scenario, the worst scenario is that the coronavirus itself, how it's playing out, how officials and celebrities and neighbors are reacting, that that becomes our main entertainment. It could become an ongoing horror show that drives us crazy and makes people even more cynical about politics, not to mention more fatalistic about uh, our economy and life in general. This goes back to. Uh, passage I wrote from, uh, I, I wrote, I wish I wrote it, I read from C.S. Lewis uh, back on Friday, C.S. Lewis writing in 1948 on living in an atomic age, and his overriding point being, yes, you face these threats to your existence, the bomb, um, but you can't let that dominate your mind. You have to get on with doing productive human things, and so Cohen is sort of channeling C.S. Lewis, and in, in part, um, by thinking about those productive things we can do, thinking about how entertainment could change in the post-coronavirus world. Imagining, uh, he writes, uh, here's an example, imagine repurposing some public parks into nighttime drive-in movie theaters. Tickets available online, of course. Going out would be a new way to partake in mass socializing and life-affirming movies could be shown with a few tragedies for those of us who seek out, seek out the sterner stuff. Sure, yeah. Drive-in Shakespeare in the park, right? Um But nonetheless, a way to uh, manage social distancing while also getting our entertainment fix. How about proceeding with some version of the NBA Finals, suggests Cohen. Take a subset of the best qualifying teams, test every player for the virus, isolate them in a remote area with a college gymnasium, and have them proceed with a shortened version of a real thing in front of only a TV crew. Uh, Television viewership would probably reach an all-time high with so many other public events closed down and the sense of drama could be incredible I expect professionals in the entertainment business could come up with better ideas yet but here's a couple of them that uh, that he offers and uh, yeah it's not bad you know get the Mark Burnett's of the world out there to figure out some innovative uh, entertainment options uh, not a bad idea thinking about uh, how to usher in a new era of entertainment uh, in our social distancing world so this
5: is the Dan Prof
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Some of the stuff on Twitter is really interesting. Empty Street in Siena, Italy. Get that guy to an opera house. Uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of this uh, these examples going viral people from their balconies and their homes and these uh, I think it was a testament to the human spirit as this the singing and the the idea of survival and optimism. Duke Gingrich uh, writing in Newsweek about Italy, you know he's over uh, in Italy, in Rome with his wife, who is the ambassador to the Holy See. He writes, "I first-hand watched. I watched firsthand as the Italian government worked hard to contain the coronavirus and imposing strong public health measures, and so on and so forth. Although the basic handle on Italy and northern Italy was it was a little slow to react, but even if that wasn't the case, they still have a healthcare infrastructure problem. And this goes to the conversation we were having earlier about the difference uh, between a medical problem and a medical system problem." Uh, This is uh, presenting both. 14% of uh, Italy's total economy uh, comes from tourism. So they're really going to be taking a hammering in all sorts of ways. Italy has a unique vulnerability to coronavirus because it has the second oldest age population in the world. Only Japan has older citizens on average. Uh, And, of course, we know that the average death to this point, at least into the weekend, was 80 years old. Uh, And Gingrich suggests that, um, look, we must not only keep America afloat, we must take evasive actions, think big, big ideas to keep the, uh, the West afloat. As Trump and Congress consider what we must do to keep America growing and prosperous, they have to recognize we may need to grow strongly enough to help pull Europe out of a deep recession by this fall. We can't just think about what is happening economically in the United States. A collapsing Europe would have huge impact on the entire world economy including America for more on the topic and the steps taken by the administration from a policy perspective in the interest of quelling this public health crisis. We're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for international studies at the heritage foundation, Jim, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Good to be with you. So um, the uh, steps that uh, president Trump and the administration have taken thus far, including the announcements on Thursday that were uh, amended over the weekend, uh, the travel ban to EU countries or from EU countries to America that uh, was extended to UK and Ireland. Let's start there.
6: I think the most effective thing that the US has done in dealing with the virus is to really limit the transmission here uh, as late as possible. We have 320 million people, we're the most trafficked country on the planet. If the virus was going to go anywhere, the logical place would be here by the initial travel ban, particularly focused on China, what that did is it really delayed the arrival of the virus. And why that's important is it pushes us further and further into the flu season. And so the less and less time we have in the flu season for the flu to be here, the much more likely we are to contain its spread. So that was important. So this second round of um, travel ban really focused on Western Europe. And the reason for that is, although we did, a, a I think, a good job of slowing the movement of the virus from China here, um, the virus had uh, was imported into the Middle East, principally through Iran, which never shut down their travel with China. Uh, and Italy, because there was a very large migrant Chinese population, uh, many of them came home after the Chinese New Year uh, when they, they should have actually been quarantined in China. Um, that essentially imported the virus into Italy. You described all the, the the problems the Italians are having to deal with that, since it's part of the Schengen, which essentially means the borderless countries of Europe, 20 plus countries, guaranteed it's going to flood through all of Europe. And so, shutting down the travel from Europe to the United States is basically stopping the second wave of the of, of the Chinese of the flu that the Chinese let escape. And the analogy I, I've, I've used is it makes no sense to try to drain the bathtub if you leave the faucet running. So stopping the import of new cases of the virus is just as important with limiting the transmission domestically.
2: A lot of the the, uh, commentary has been in the direction of the CDC, criticizing the CDC and to some extent the FDA for being a bottleneck on test development and distribution. Um,
6: I think it's going to be a very difficult story to unpack. I, I think there are certainly issues about deploying an efficacious test, which is, I think, a big part of the problem. Um, I, I think the second issue is, is we, we focus on testing because that's what we all love to focus on. But testing is not the silver bullet. If you actually look at the countries that are broken in the back of the, of the contagion, it wasn't because of rapidly expanding testing. It was because of other measures that they took. Um, testing doesn't make a big difference in terms of treatment. The treatment is pretty much the same regardless of which kind of flu you have. Um, it does help you track the spread. It's no question that's it's not important. It's important that we rapidly expand it. But, again, 320 million people, it's already here. Testing is not going to solve your problem. I do think that the, the, the strategy that really focuses on fo- uh, social distancing, protecting the most vulnerable populations, is probably the most efficacious. And I think that's why it's really been the – Kind of the centerpiece of the public health response,
2: but testing testing can help you focus your resources accordingly. I mean, if yeah, it does, and I yeah. think
6: that's why they've they've really focused on pushing testing to the areas where they have the most clusters, because then you could do trace and and figure out who you want to really want to isolate. That makes sense. Uh,
2: I wonder if there's anything that you think, from a, a public health perspective, that should be conducted at present that's not being conducted or not in the scale it needs to be, besides testing?
6: I was actually much more pleased with the Rose Garden speech um, the other day because, yeah, because it really focused on the thing that's most important is, again, we have a massive country, 320 million people. A centralized response is really not going to get you there because different communities, different capacities, different capabilities, different concerns Decentralized execution actually can be much, much more effective in a large scale public health response. And what we really announced is, in a sense, pushing resources and capabilities um, down to the local level to really give people the resources and tools to respond. I, I think that's the most important step that we've taken so far.
2: He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. as
3: always appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm getting drunk on a plane. Buying drinks for everybody But the pilot, and some party Got me 737
5: Rockin'
0: like a shoe. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked about an enterprising young man from Leeds across the pond in England last week uh, selling, uh, what was it, squirts of hand sanitizer for 50 pence a piece before he was uh, discovered and uh, returned home to his parents by uh, school authorities for, you know, quote, unquote, gouging his parents. I mean, his uh, his uh, mates. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. And uh, another such story. Uh, After the coronavirus, uh, first coronavirus death in the United States, two brothers in Tennessee, Matt and Noah Colvin, uh, circled all of the relevant stores in Chattanooga, Dollar Tree, Walmart, Staples, Home Depot, and stocked up as in cleared the shelves of hand sanitizer. Over the next three days, uh, they filled a U-Haul truck with thousands of uh, the over the next three days after March 1st, the first death being reported, filled the U-Haul truck with thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer, thousands of packs of antibacterial wipes from little hole-in-the-wall stores in the backwoods after clearing out all the superstores. And uh, then they went online to uh, make their fortune, cornering the market in disinfectants. They posted uh, 300 bottles of hand sanitizer, immediately sold them all for between 8 and $70 each. Uh, according to uh, Matt Colvin, crazy money, crazy money. And uh, then word apparently got back to the corporate overlords at Amazon, and they pulled Colvin's items and thousands of other listings for the sanitizer, for wipes, for face masks, suspended some of the sellers behind the listings, warned many others if they kept running up prices, they'd lose their accounts. Uh, eBay followed suit. It left uh, Matt Colvin with 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer and nowhere to sell them, uh, contacted by uh, local media. He was asked if he's sorry for uh, the uh, scheme that he and his brother devised. Long pause as he thought about it.
7: Would you say you're sorry? Sorry for purchasing, sorry for buying all of this No, I don't
4: think
2: that I would. <laughs> Had to think about it. No, I don't think that I would. Uh, I probably regrets it because he didn't anticipate to the uh, commissars at Amazon and eBay coming in, uh, but uh, market need, market opportunity, arbitraging hand sanitizer, create uh, the the wipes and stuff. Is, is that is that price gouging? No, it's finding a market clearing price. You're, he's responsible for crazy hoarders predicting end times and trying to do exactly what he did, which is buy up a disproportionate share of hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes and so on and so forth. If people will pay $70 for a bottle of hand sanitizer, why shouldn't he be able to sell it to him at $70? That's called scarcity. That's called supply and demand. And yeah, it's funny. It's the same thing Amazon and eBay do. This is the Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, follow us at danprofshow.com, on social media, at Dan Prof Show, Facebook and Twitter, also at Dan Prof on both. Uh, a week ago, Mark Canlis's restaurant Seattle was offering a $135 tasting menu to a bustling dining room every night. Eileen uh, Horner's Inn on the main coast was booking rooms for the busy spring graduation season. And uh, today, that's no longer the case. Last week, I would have told you nothing had changed, she said. This week, it has all gone to hell. Uh, Mr. Canlis' restaurant, Seattle, is preparing to become a drive through operation serving burgers. Mr. Horner's bleeding cash as she refunds deposits for scores of canceled reservations. I hope my California trip to Pebble Beach doesn't get canceled. But this is the uh, New Jerusalem in, uh, you know, week uh, eight of coronavirus, effectively, arguably. Uh, with, uh, according to the CDC, eight more weeks to go. That's their directive, or at least advisory. For the next eight weeks, no gatherings of 50 or more people, and that led to, of course, the uh, run on bar and restaurant closures announced in major cities across America on Sunday. For more on the topic, as we uh, come into Monday with the uh, circuit breaker tripped, Uh, on Wall Street for the third time in a week. We're pleased to be joined by Scott Shalady, Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: I'm glad to be here.
2: So uh, over the weekend, uh, the Fed announcing that it was cutting rates to just about zero. uh, That uh, didn't seem to do much to calm the market this morning, did it?
1: No,
9: no. it was a surprise announcement. I mean, look, I'm always... I guess you you'd like to see the Fed want to help, but I mean, I think the timing's terrible, and it, what they sent the message they sent to the market was there's something here to actually be to be worried about. I think you know, with interest rates being as low as they are and oil trading as low as it, as it is, that's you know something to be worried about. But when the Fed then finally comes in behind that and, and takes rates to basically zero, when everybody in America would have said uh, two months ago there's no chance we would ever go negative, well, we're now knocking on the door. Um, that really kind of gave some people some some worry. Now, there's only two things that means. Number one is that we're overreacting, or number two is they know something we don't. I I tend to err on the side that the government doesn't know anything we don't, um, and they you know they could screw up a one-car funeral. So I think well, and, we are overreacting, but you know this is where we're this is the world we're in. And
2: and, and President Trump on uh, Saturday Saturday briefing basically talked about you know now the Fed needs to do what it's supposed to do, which of course from his perspective is cut rates again, and then they did. Um, but, but, um, wouldn't it have been more judicious to hold off and wait for things to improve and then send a signal from a position of increasing confidence rather than what seems to be increasing desperation?
9: Exactly right. And and I said in my writings this morning that, you know, what's wrong with waiting for these cases to subside or at least... The, the amount of new cases on a daily basis starting to come down, and then come in with some some monetary support. That what I, I thought you'd you get say eighty percent of you know of the bang for your buck. I think on Friday or Saturday, whatever Sunday, I think they got ten cents you know for bang on their buck. It's just it's going to be standing in front of a hysterical, you know, psychological freight train, and the dollars aren't going to make a difference. And, again, until you give people the psychological confidence that they can come out of their houses again without being sick and going to the hospital, that's when the money really can be put forward to, for good work. Until then, you're just going to you can stack up all the money you want on their front porch, and they're not going to come out to pick it up.
2: Well, and on the fiscal side, uh, the, the the effort to cobble together an aid package that uh, moved along on Friday – with uh, waiving insurance co-pays for diagnostic testing and treatment and uh extending jobless benefits and um, and other uh, components of uh, essentially backstopping some of the economic damage for individual Americans and American families um you know that's that's factored in too and that's not inspiring any more confidence than the rate cut it would seem
1: well I
9: think that's where we got our nine percent move higher on Friday really was from the public partner public private partnership that was really on the back of the fact, I think, of what was happening there. Uh, and I think that we're giving it all back today, not quite all of it, but most of it back today is really a reaction to, hey, what do they know that we don't? I don't think they do, but that doesn't matter what I think. It's just what the market's telling me, and the market's really, really starting to get to that point where, I mean, look, uh, we, we just did a, a, a call about, crude oil prices being below 30 bucks a barrel, there's something like 28 29 bucks a barrel right now. I mean, what's your risk now? I mean, you only lose $28. I mean, at some point in time, you got to look at these stocks and not look at them in percentage terms, but in ultimate loss terms, and you start to give yourself a little bit of comfort because the propensity for everything to keep going lower gets less as it keeps going lower, right? So mm-hmm. we're getting that inflection point. The markets are really, really nervous right now, and it's because they're 100% psychological. They're not trading off of fundamentals and technicals.
2: And, and so um, uh, with respect to uh, the energy, energy sector, particularly, and where the uh, price of a barrel of oil is, uh, concerns that you could see a uh, real run of bankruptcies with highly leveraged uh, energy sector players, and uh, you know that could uh, further destabilize things.
9: Yeah, this is something for everybody to think about. And, you know, I, I've got a British passport. I've spent 16 years living there. And they've taken interesting enough and this goes into your point, I'll get there, believe me, I'll get you an answer. They've taken the the, uh, the let it happen kinda you know, they're they're gonna go for something called herd immunity where they're just like they're not doing the things that we're doing. They just said sixty thousand people show up to one of their biggest horse races of all time on Saturday or Friday afternoon, the Cheltenham Gold Cup. And they're they they've taken this point of view of maybe the band aid comes off quicker, it hurts more but it's faster if you don't try to get involved, because we're all talking about bringing this curve down, right? The bell curve, that's Fars law. Right. But when you're bringing it down, you're really only taking the ends of it and pulling. And what that really does is that extends your economic hardship.
2: Right. But, but now, but now, but now, Tony Fauci would tell you, right, but I'm trying to save lives and I'm trying to make sure the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. I, I guess in, across the pond in the UK, they're, national healthcare system it's overwhelmed as a matter of course so what's just more more being overwhelmed
9: right right yeah it's like it's like uh, paté right how much can you feed the the goose okay. but what i'll say is this is that if you're going to get it you're going to get it and that's kind of the attitude that they're taking over in the uk here I, we're trying to bring down that curve so that you don't overwhelm our healthcare system. I get that, right? But you're still going to get you're it. Those are going to get it. We're probably going to get it. And by taking the ends of that bell curve and pulling them to the sides, you're just going to be lengthening the economic melees that is going to be coming from this. And so it's going to be take longer to get through it, and it will be longer to get started again. And I think that people really don't realize the unintended consequences of the hysteria are going to be job losses, business losses, and bankruptcies. I mean, that's bottom line.
2: Yeah. And so thinking about that and and, uh, what I mentioned about the CDC advisory, eight weeks, no more than 50 people gathering. That's what they'd like to see. And obviously, you know, everything that shut down all the way to to jury trials uh, in jurisdictions around the country. I mean, uh, getting well underneath 50. But but, uh, you know, all the people in the courtroom and stuff. I mean, I understand the argument, but it's just getting. Uh, Boy, it's just uh, it's really remarkable to see and to see how quickly it's happened. So thinking about that timeline, though, that we're talking about, uh, you know, maybe June before things start to return to anything resembling normalcy, uh, you know, as you try to project out what the world would look like in June if we have another eight weeks of this, what does that look like?
9: I, I think there'll be there'll be massive job losses. They can't continue to support everything. These NBA players can't pay for everybody that's going to be serving popcorn. I mean, there are going to be uh, uh, there's going to be a massive unintended consequence of everybody trying to take precaution. And Now, you know, how many suicides does that mean? I mean, the financial damage, the fiscal damage from this will far outgra- out, you know, outgrow. Or outweigh the viral damage and I think that I, I know when I sound when I talk like that it's, it, it makes it sound like I'm being a little bit callous towards the people that I know it's horrible I, And I wish the flu was gone too and I wish cancer was gone too, Right. but when you right, have to of look at things commonsensically there, There's gonna be a price to pay a big price to pay here for no adults in the room because you know From what I read and I'm a con you know, my job is to take your emotions out of it, right? And I've done that for 32 years. That's how you stay around But you just read the numbers, and you make an educated guess. And if I read the numbers that I'm getting from the government about, hey, the things you need to do, cover your mouth when you cough, wash your hands, all the things that you need to do to stay away from getting the flu are what they're telling us to do for this virus. And yet... They're canceling everything, like you just said, and on top of it, they're they're not even making sense in their cancellations, right? You can't go to a restaurant, but you can get on a a commuter train and get in a plane, Mm -hmm. right? You can't eat with other people in a gathering, but you can still eat your McDonald's on the express going home. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, and I think that also doesn't give people a lot of comfort, so... We're just going to have to get through it, but everybody needs to keep their, their minds, you know, in this business we have a great saying, sometimes your own imagination is your own worst enemy, mm-hmm. and I think that's a large part of what's happening.
2: Uh, when we come back with Scotch Lady, I want to get your uh, opinion way in on this uh, running debate. You know, we like historical comparisons because it helps us to sort of make sense of what we don't know in the present. So this argument, uh, you know, is this something akin to 9-11 in terms of the economic damage? Or is it uh, more like the 2008 financial crisis? Scotch uh, the lady will weigh in on that. Later.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. We're talking to Scott Shalady, Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business Regular, about uh, the economic damage being done by, um, well, shuttering significant portions of the economy. And, Scott, 9 uh, 11 versus 2008 in terms of the economic damage. Uh, 2008, uh, a financial institution meltdown. Uh, 9-11, obviously, an exogenous event that we recovered from, but the underlying banking system, for example, was uh, was stable. Uh, Which is uh, this more akin to?
9: Yeah, well, I mean, depending, uh, we talk about the months it took to kind of get back to normal. Between the two of those, it was between 14 and 20 months, depending which one you're talking about. But, you know, this one could be different because all of the things that we've had go wrong in our economy, or at least with the markets reflecting what went wrong, is from the economy, right? We had going back to a long time ago, starting with the savings and loan crisis to Asian contagion to, you know, whatever we had, the, the, the property prices of 2008, those all were something that emanated from within the system. And this is the first time in my 32 years I've seen something actually start outside the system. So I'm not quite sure if that really comes back a lot faster. Now, Mnuchin over the weekend was trying to tell us that is absolutely the case. This is something that's going to be done. We'll get through it, and we'll get back to normal. But I can't see us getting back to normal when we, like we said in the last segment, if we're going to be squashing down that yield, that bell curve, and prolonging our economic melees. I think that's going to be an issue. I don't think we're going to come out of this as fast as people think, because... So I think it probably takes longer than the 20 months, I guess, to get to what we're talking about because of what's going to actually be happening. Watch these do- job layoffs. Look what American Airlines has already done. Look what's happening in the restaurant industry. That's, I mean, we lost 247,000 hotel rooms just with McCormick Place here in Chicago. I mean, that think about all the people that clean those rooms, the bartenders downstairs, the cab drivers, the Uber, there is an absolute knock-on effect to this, this hysteria, and, and when you see people, I mean, even smart people, Dan, I've talked to some smart people that get caught up in it, because you go to the store, and all of a sudden, you see people hoarding everything, and they walk out with, you know, Brazil nuts and chocolate, when they just went in for something simple.
2: <laughs> but, well... <laughs> Okay. Well, and, of course, uh, any uh, shards of toilet paper that are left. Right, exactly. Uh, but, 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 I mean, in terms of the, the, the question about the financial system, I'm seeing a lot of analysts saying, look, the financial inst- system is still liquid. It's still stable. So we have that foundation regardless of how bad it looks. Is that something uh, to which you concur?
9: I was probably saying beforehand it was probably a little bit rickier than they were saying beforehand, right? I didn't really trust it. And you know what the two things I'm looking at now? you got oil prices as low as they are. That's a big, big negative to me. I know it's great for the consumer in the short term, but it's not for our oil industry in the long term. And then interest rates are also telling me, that we got something to worry about here, right? We're under 1%. You've just, you know, we've got the 10-year yield at 0.83. That's a little bit better. That makes me feel a little bit better. However, we just cut interest rates to zero, right? So when when is the U.S. going to go into negative rates? Everybody would have said that's crazy, but here we are knocking on the door. So those two things tell me we have a leak in our economic system. We're not maybe as strong as we thought we are, but we're stronger than everybody else, and that's what everybody kind of leans back on and takes a little bit of comfort from. So you look at the two sides of that coin, I still say we're on risky ground.
2: Mm. And and again, the analysts that uh, that uh, the the analysis that you have access to, the entrepreneurs and corporate leaders that you consult with, you know, what is their disposition, and what is what do those conversations tell you about where you think this is going, and the the uh, the the duration of it?
9: Yeah, it's probably going to be a little longer than folks normally expect. Number one. Um, and number two is that um, it will definitely come back. I mean, they're not afraid to buy it. They just know, they know that they have a certain amount of bullets to spend, and they don't want to do it too early, just like the Fed did. Um, and so they're going to wait and let the, everybody kind of let their hair kind of come, stop being on fire, and they'll get back in. But remember, if you would have bought the high of the market every year since 1987, you'd be a very very wealthy person.
2: But 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 I mean. Uh, you're still looking at more likely than not. Uh, it's going to be a negative year for the market, but perhaps significantly a, a bear market we're in right now. Not to mention uh, the question of of the R word and negative growth for the next two quarters. Uh, we could,
9: any given year, we have 10 to 15 percent chance of that happening anyway. So yeah, that could be definitely something on the cards. We'll keep an eye on these yield curves, but it, also you know we're down 25 percent on the year so far. We were up three, so it's a 28 percent swing. To think that we're going to come back, and last year was a stonkingly great year, and the Dow was up 28%. So to come back after being down, it'll be a monumental feat if it happens, but the, your a betting man would say, yes, things will get better, but to, to come out of this and be positive for the year, extremely difficult.
2: Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to this piece in the Wall Street Journal by Andy Kessler, and he he talks about what's next uh, what's uh, what will the new business era be how will, how will it be punctuated uh, he suggests that uh, the end of china's dominance is certainly coming because of all the discussions of the uh, uh locating so much of your supply chain in communist china particularly when it comes to things like medicines that uh vietnam and other countries with low cost labor could benefit maybe this is africa's moment um so that's one piece of it he also suggests that um, uh, interest rates in the Fed may increasingly become increasingly irrelevant, uh, that um, uh, they, they're they just going to be less important uh, when it comes to uh, who and what finances an increasing share of global trade. And he also uh, uh, mentioned that uh, maybe more companies will – uh, stay private and stay private longer rather than uh, taking their chances in the vagaries of the market.
9: Well, to that point, to the to, to the going public argument, um, there's been a lot of people that have gone private because of the regulatory issues, and they want to be in more control of what they do. They don't want to have to spend half their year filing things with the government. I mean, it makes makes sense in some cases. Um,
2: like you next gro- Yeah. Next growth sector. You know, I mean, he he throws out some suppositions, but he's like, this is what uh, people should be thinking about uh, focusing on. Instead of focusing on which cities are to be quarantined, we should be thinking about what's next. Very few investors are. And we should be thinking about, for example, maybe the bio world, DNA sequencing and gene editing starting to ramp up. Healthcare is going to be transformed, perhaps right, yeah. because of uh, how uh, the system has held up under responding to this pandemic, for example.
9: I think healthcare and the technology together, those two together, yes, absolutely, is is the a, a next place to go. But I was really trying to formulate an answer to whether interest rates really matter anymore and, and, and the likes. And I would I would agree to some. You know, that's an interesting point that he raises. And I would agree, and the reason why I was trying to think about what I wanted to say is because you know, in in paralleling with Trump and and his you know national his xenophobia, or whatever you want to call it. You know, he has really attacked our economy from a psychological point of view, and really, although he bashes on about interest rates and what might be coming down the road in, in those areas, he really healed the economy here with maybe, uh, obviously, the regulations and tax cuts, but he also made people feel a lot better, and so did Reagan. And there is something to be said for maybe there's more power in the psychological turning around of something than it would be by throwing look look what the, the Fed did on on Sunday you know they, they could have done something else to make us feel better and maybe we'd be not down 10% on the day so I I think that there's something to be said for the fiscal policy slowly but surely taking a back seat and maybe, I mean it's also dangerous you could get some some guy in there that could be kind of crazy, but there's been some good done with trying to take a little bit of the damage out of the psyche of America and making them feel better about what they're doing and make them feel more confident about what they're doing and look what that, do, that does come through in consumer confidence and, and the growth of the country.
2: He is Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business regular Scott. Thanks as always for joining us, appreciate it. All
0: right, take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. A lot of crocodile tears shed when uh, President Trump announced it before or during the Saturday briefing that uh, he had been temperature checked and checked out no temperature, and he also uh, got tested for COVID-19 and was awaiting the results. Meanwhile, Jennifer Rubin over the Washington Post, this is someone who uh, the Beltway Big Government Press Corps calls a conservative. Uh, She's very concerned, so she expressed to Joy Reid on MSNBC that uh, more Republicans than Democrats are going to die from coronavirus infection. Uh, as if we should keep stats on that basis by party affiliation. Uh, Jerome Adams, he's our Surgeon General, United States Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams. He had uh, this offering at the Saturday briefing, this uh, wish from the media.
3: Straight talk from the nation's doctor. We really need you all to lean into and prioritize the health and safety of the American people. No more bickering, no more partisanship, no more criticism or finger-pointing, There'll be plenty of time for that, but we all need to hit the reset button and lean into moving forward. The health and safety of the American people are their top priority. More stories on how people can protect themselves, more people on how people can get the resources that they need that we've unleashed from the federal government and state and local governments. Less stories looking at what happened in the past. Again, there'll be time for that.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Adams, I don't think Jennifer Rubin is on board. Uh, neither is the uh, larger interweb, the repository, social media at least, the repository of anger and sadness. Uh, and the D.C. Press Corps presents stiff competition to social media on that score. For more on both scores, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Warren Davis. He's the editor of Crisis Magazine, contributed to the American Conservative, Specter USA, and First Things. M.W. Davis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me back. What about uh, Jennifer Rubin in particular, um, the uh, uh, concern – well, the uh, description of who uh, it was being more – taking uh, the, uh, the, the virus more seriously, Republicans versus Democrats, and then projecting out uh, who she thinks, handicapping who she thinks uh, may suffer more deaths, Republicans or Democrats. What does that say about our politics?
10: Well, Jennifer Rubin, uh, I don't know how any Republican – how anyone can call themselves a conservative, and then I think one of her most recent columns, she said that uh, conservatives are obligated to vote, you know, down ballot on every for every single Democrat that's put up for election. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, Jeff Bezos is you have to admit he's doing a really terrific job at the Washington Post. He's uh he's got Jennifer Rubin, he's got Max Boot. He lost his only thoughtful left wing contributor, uh, Liz Brunig, to the the New York Times. Uh, yeah, it's it, the the post the post is a catastrophe and uh, and Jennifer Rubin has always has always been a charlatan, um, just a just a you know a standard establishmentarian neocon, uh, and she, and she's she, of course she's bitter and resentful that that the uh, that the 2016 election wiped out uh, her all of her friends in the upper echelons of the Republican Party and if she expects God to take vengeance on her behalf and. Wipe out the the uh, the Trumpkins through coronavirus. Well, I I think she'll be disappointed. Uh, but that's that's about what we've come to expect from from people like Miss Rubin. So, what are you gonna do?
2: Yeah, I mean it, it really is a sort of thinly veiled rooting for. Um, I I wonder just a, a statement about uh, how you see this uh, playing out. Um, I I know not necessarily on social media, but in three-dimensional life, how you see this playing out and whether or not you get the sense that this is a, a unifying moment, uh, Americans putting those partisan affiliations aside for the moment, or it's just another opportunity to um, uh, prosecute your particular grievances in one direction or the other?
10: I think America, the American people are are very, very willing to put aside uh Partisan disputes and try to do what's best to figure out how it is we can, we can curtail the spread of coronavirus. Uh, I don't think our leaders will do that. I don't think it's possible for them to do that because they they, they are partisan animals and they make their money through this kind of <clears throat> mean spirited bickering. Uh, I hope that what happens is that we become disillusioned with uh, or further disillusioned. <laughs> I don't know if we can get more disillusioned, but I'd like to see if we can try. With the uh, the people who, who consider themselves the the safe guardians of, of truth and democracy, um, as they as they do continue to to capitalize on this very unfortunate, well spread of epidemic across the country, uh, to further their own interests. I have a what, I, what, I have another. Let's, I, let's
2: let's hold it right there. It. We'll come back and I want to get your your other point and as well as I want to discuss the poopocalypse as you call it, along with uh, need side economics, which will be a nice contrast from the discussion we just had earlier in the hour with Scott Lady. more with Michael Warren Davis editor of Crisis Magazine right after this
0: Exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Proft Show
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Michael Warren Davis, the editor of Crisis Magazine, contributing to American Conservative Spectator to USA and First Things. And, uh, Michael, we were just talking about sort of the politicization of uh, the coronavirus, the response, uh, as well as the decision-making uh, associated with different response choices at every level. And uh, you were talking about uh, the politicians being sort of, Uh, irreparably uh, committed to partisan politics. Um, I wanted to to go to this uh, piece that you wrote for the American Conservative as well. Um, Been a lot of discussion over the last uh, week or two leading up to the aid package that was put together by Congress on Friday about uh, demand-side stimulus versus supply-side stimulus. And uh, you talk about the need for need-side economics, which uh, called to mind a little bit Marco Rubio's... uh, what is what is need side economics?
10: Well, uh, so need side economics, I I'll, I'll let me put it this way: In the United States, are are we are in, completely in the thrall of China for all of our almost all of our life saving medicine, and um, we saw how really dangerous that is by the uh, the statement the Chinese government put out saying that if uh, <clears throat> that they that they would be very happy to weaponize. Their pharmaceutical companies it was a it was an open completely open threat saying yes we would we would be very happy to to withhold uh for instance um chemotherapy drugs in order for americans to die as part of their trade war against the united states that's completely unacceptable the need the idea of need side economics it's not a it's not it's not new uh it's it you know it goes back to pat buchanan and his his idea of producerism uh, it goes back to G.K. Chesterton and T.H. Belloc and their idea of distributism. But here's the thing: Pfizer uh, has four huge plants in China. Uh, they ha- they have outsourced almost all of their um, uh, uh, laboratory work to four large plants in China, which has allowed them which allowed them in the fiscal year 2019 to generate 40 billion dollars in profits. Uh, 40 billion dollars after all of their uh, costs were paid for after all their salaries were paid for that again, and this, this, is, this has made Americans more vulnerable. Need side economics, as I call it, uh, is, is a, 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 an approach to economics that says that we first and foremost, our, our number one priority has to be our ability to produce our own medicine, food, uh, means of shelter to cover to cover the basic needs laid out in Maslow 's hierarchy of needs ourselves in this country. Um, we, we, which we, which at, at the moment we simply cannot do. Um, I, there's a, there's a, a, an interesting phrase that came out of uh, the Great Depression, called the amphibian farmer. And the amphibian farmer is uh, simply a farmer who owns the land that he works, and you know his his so-called sea element uh, is the market. When he has a surplus of crops, he goes to the market and sells it. When the market turns bad, as it did in the Great Depression, um, he can simply return to his home and he can uh, and, and eat the crops that he grows. And uh, St- uh, Stuart Chase, I think his name is, the, uh, the FDR's chief economic advisor who actually t- coined the term Great Depression, talked about the amphibian farmer and said, uh, when the books won't balance, he has only to throw the books out the window and go pick some peas. The thing is, we can't do that in this country anymore because... Our agriculture has been completely taken over by the same companies. I mean, Bayer Pharmaceuticals bought out Monsanto, and now owns. Now Bayer Pharmaceutical owns uh, m- most of the GMO uh, crops, the seeds that we use to grow crops in the United States. We, if, if uh, the majority of, I think only 15% of farmers own the land that they work, which puts them at about 0.2 five percent of the united states population if there was another economic catastrophe like the great depression we couldn't feed ourselves so we're we're not in a position to meet our basic needs as a country and so which is why i talk about needside side economics we have to completely rearrange our economy so that if the you know the 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 towering artifice of, of of industrial capitalism ever came tumbling down we wouldn't all collectively starve to death
2: I mean, I understand. I understand the the the. I think uh, the balance you're trying to strike. I mean, you, we don't want to be neo-Luddites and be opposed to innovation. I mean, it, particularly in farming. I mean, there's vertical farming going on now. Companies like Plenty uh, that are venture capital finance at this juncture, where you're growing in um, in a closed space. Uh, exponentially more than you can produce of any crop, uh, you know, with respect to the acreage, the respective acreage of the plenty site versus, you know, traditional farming. So it it seems to me we don't want to eschew that sort of innovation. But by the same token, you can make uh, intelligent decisions, national security based decisions about things like a uh, over reliance uh, on uh, supply chains that uh, are located in China when it comes to life saving drugs.
10: Absolutely. and I and the other point I guess is that uh, f- uh the reason that we grow so much corn and soy is because those c- c- crops are both subsidized and this is kind right. of a, this is yes. in, in many respects a, a well-meaning attempt to save farmers from losing their farms because you know it, it's cheaper to import food um, but we don't need <laughs> we don't need corn corn's actually not very good for you and what we do with it is we produce. You know high fructose corn syrup which is basically poison we grow we uh we turn it into um, ethanol which isn't efficient by any means and soy again soy is it's it's turning the freaking frog's gay as as uh as uh, alex Jones put it it's just it's <laughs> it's not good for you it it's it it puts estrogen in your body we don't need it so we uh yeah so i i, I we it, it, it is uh there there is a political aspect to the the coronavirus catastrophe, if there is one, uh, it it I think it is this the fact that you know, <laughs> even when we grow food, it's not to it's not to meet the basic needs of the American people. We when we grow food, it's to make it's to make profit off of off of crops that we don't even want to eat. So that's yeah, that's that's a that's a huge that's a huge issue that that does need to be addressed. And as you say, I mean, it's not we don't have to throw away the you know the international harvester. Uh, and go back to donkeys pulling plows through fields, but we have to be much smarter about the kinds of crops that we produce, where we produce them in the country to 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 remove the need for the uh, for, for for middlemen and and transportation and and retail and processing. Um, if we because if we don't, the, the market is so overstretched as it is, and as we saw last week. You know, a couple of big investors getting a little panicky about the spread of coronavirus almost brought the the entire economy to its knees. That is not good. We have to change that.
2: All right. We're going to have to leave it there. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine. Michael Warren Davis, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you.
8: The more you listen, the more
0: you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proff Show. Boy, the hits keep coming for CNN. First, uh, Fredo's favorite, uh, favorite guest, Michael Avenatti, is convicted of extorting Nike. And he's facing stiff prison sentences, and I do mean stiff. And uh, now, uh, former Florida Democrat gubernatorial candidate turned CNN contributor. And he came very close to beating Ron DeSantis to be governor of Florida in 2018, you'll recall. Andrew Gillum caught over the weekend in a hotel room with meth and a gay escort. The man who, this New York post reporting the man who overdosed on crystal meth in a Florida hotel room with Andrew Gillum, a Democrat who made an unsuccessful bid for Florida governor was an openly gay male escort with a profile on the website, RentMen.com. men.com brother. Uh, Travis Dyson is his name. He identifies as a porn star performer who offered services, including gay massage, um, I like kissing and foreplay. Lots of kissing and foreplay. I enjoy my nipple rings lightly played with. Mutual touch and intimacy goes a long way on his profile page on RentMen.com. Cleansing breath. Uh, And um, Gillum was found vomiting and intoxicated with Dyson at the uh, South Beach Hotel, according to a police report obtained by the Miami Herald. Not arrested, but he was unable to communicate with others due to his inebriated state. Uh, Gillum offered an apology after this became public. I was in Miami last night for a wedding celebration when first responders were called to assist one of my friends. While I had too much to drink, I want to be clear that I've never used methamphetamines. I apologize to the people of Florida for this distraction, uh, for the distraction this has caused our movement. Our movement. I apologize to my people for distracting us from this, you know, our movement. Uh, The the self-inflation. By the way, he was found with um, meth uh, and a gay escort. And he wants to make it clear he's never used methamphetamines. No comment on the RentMen.com dude, just for the record. Now, Gillum, of course, has done the politically expedient thing he announced that uh, this that that whole episode has been a wake-up call for him this on Sunday saying that uh, since his race for governor ended he fell into a depression that has led to alcohol abuse. I witnessed my father suffer from alcoholism and I know the damaging effects it can have when untreated. I also know the alcohol that uh, alcoholism is often a symptom of deeper struggles. What is uh, a married uh, father of three? hanging out with a gay escort in a South Beach hotel. What's that a symptom of?
8: Hmm?
2: Andrew, uh, I, my father suffered from alcoholism and so on and so forth. So he's in, enrolled in a treatment center, rehab facility, because he's going to be the victim now. Yeah, this is CNN. And this is The damn Project. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com on social media, at danprofshow, at prof. Either way, uh, so just a few days after his uh, Dana Carvey grumpy old man impersonation with uh, that uh, construction worker in Detroit in advance of the Michigan primary primary results on primary day, uh, Joe Biden had to cancel his rally in Illinois for coronavirus-related reasons. So they did uh, what appeared to be a hastily put together live town hall. Good grief. Joe Biden talking about health care and some other topics while he apparently forgot or doesn't know that live stream means you're on camera. Wandered sort of off the screen for a minute. And these were the quality of his musings on the salient issues of the
7: day being the public option, providing for the additional funding that would provide for no hidden bills, et cetera. And I can get it done. I can get it done quickly and people will be covered. But even I can't do that for another two year, another a year between now and November. How long? Or actually January.
2: Yeah, right. Inauguration. Sure.
7: But to be covered, which means that they can't build any factories or any, any, anything within one mile of the estuary of the Delaware River and the Atlantic Ocean and the Chesapeake. And so the whole point of this is that we can do a lot to deal with endangered species. And one of the things I would like to raise is that we have to deal with this on an international basis as well. Because right now, for example, we have a thing, you know, Brazil has the, the Amazon is burning because they're trying to clear the Amazon in order to make money in agriculture.
2: Now, again, those were segments of different answers throughout the course of the town hall. However, uh, whew, really? Uh, but nonetheless, he stood his ground long enough on Sunday night's debate to be perceived as uh, the winner just for not being knocked knocked out or for knocking himself down. On his way to being the nominee, all that's left to really um, really go through is who will his running may be, other than we know it will be a female. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Hemingway, who is a book editor at The Federalist, federalist.com, former senior writer at The Weekly Standard. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So between uh, Tuesday in Detroit and Friday's live stream town hall and Sunday night's debate, um, what is uh, – what is our weeklong summation of the quality of Joe Biden's candidacy at this point? Not against Bernie Sanders, which is sort of a fait accompli, but uh, going up against President Trump and lasting the next eight months or however long he Trump. thinks the campaign is.
5: Right. Well, I think that the, the best indicator of how well his campaign is doing is how well is how much the media is having to spin for him. Um, you know, we, I think we saw this most evidently um, in the confrontation with the, the union worker earlier this week about guns. I mean, this was a an, an encounter where the former vice president um, mangled the facts and threatened to slap the voter. And we had nothing but this, you know, chorus of, you know, media commentator types saying that it was a viral moment for Biden and it, and uh, I believe that Joy Reid at, at MSNBC said he was forceful and composed. I and mean, he threatened to slap a voter. Um, I mean, it's really just astonishing. There's like nothing that Joe Biden can do where he, he doesn't, you know, show his age and, and weaknesses. And, and somehow major, you know, media people won't come out of their, won't come out of the woodwork to try and spin this into some sort of, you know, uh, example of how he's prepared to, to take on Trump.
2: Well, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, talk about spinning, you know, this this labeling him a moderate, uh, forgetting his uh, four decades in public life. Even the positions that he's taken to mirror Bernie Sanders this election cycle right up until yesterday before the debate where he announced that he's adopting, uh, at least in significant measure, Bernie Sanders, quote unquote, free college plan, tuition free college or university for all students whose family incomes are are below $125,000. In addition to that, uh, during the debate, as Byron York observed, restating that basically uh, Joe Biden is president, nobody gets deported until and unless they commit a felony on U.S. soil.
5: Yeah. And another example of that was uh, Biden uh, adopting basically, you know, he tried to couch in a more moderate language, but it effectively amounts to a fracking ban that, that yeah. he's now endorsing as well. Um, yes, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um <laughs> The bottom line is that the reason why the media and Democratic establishment, um, which are you know, generally lockstep on these issues, um, were panicking about Bernie Sanders is they thought that he was too far left. And Biden you know, gets out there every day, and he, again, you know, is, is, is moving along with the Democratic base itself um, you know, further and further to the left. The question is, is whether that kind of you know cognitive dissonance you know won't catch up to him in a general election where Trump and Republicans you know start blasting him for this this sort of stuff and showing exactly how out of step he is. You know, he, he, again, his appeal is solely that he's electable and a moderate. But if he keeps adopting these left wing positions, then it's going to be very very hard for him to you know try and tack back to the center and 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 claim that he is the moderate everyone says he is.
2: Although I wonder, you know, how much. How much uh, branding uh, from multiple directions you can do if you're the Trump campaign? I mean, is it going to be Sleepy Joe? Uh, is it going to be uh, left wing Joe? Is it going to be self-dealing Joe a la Peter Schweitzer's right up on, uh, the, you know, the Swiss family Biden there while he was the vice president? Is it going to be, you know, he's just not competent, which is sort of a, a corollary to Sleepy. I mean, you can only run so many tracks at the same time and not dilute your message, right?
5: Right. No, I mean certainly that's that's a challenge. But you know, if if you're running for office, that's a problem you want to have. You want to have too many angles to go after your, mm-hmm. your opponent, as opposed to you know not enough. <laughs> I'm sure the Trump campaign will you know be doing extensive polling and, and message testing to figure out you know which one works. Um, but you know there there's all manner of avenues and stuff to go after someone in 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 this kind of you know social media environment um where there's you know all kinds of different ways to come after a candidate you know maybe the national campaign will have one message but certain surrogates and certain groups and other things will come at biden from different angles as well but but you know you're right i mean there there's there's definitely discrete lines of of attack against joe Bi- of, of against joe
2: biden here Well, and and part of it too is, uh, you know, this is something that the team Biden has to figure out with Trump as well, because you know, if you want to take Trump on on the measure of competence. Uh, for uh, their assessment of how the Trump administration is handling the coronavirus crisis at present. I mean, you know, with a long way to go between now and November and we'll see how this plays out and all those caveats. But if, if you wanted to make it a competency election, do you really want to make it a competency election with Joe Biden or do you want to make it a likability election or do you want to make it something else? You know, they have a, a decision to make too.
5: Yeah, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it'll, it'll be very um, interesting to see what um they they come up with i mean obviously um if sanders had been the candidate you know it would have been a very clear line of attack against him you know he's far too left-wing he's praising castro all of that sort of thing um with biden i mean it's absolutely true that he has a certain appeal to um um you know blue-collar voters and other things that are stronger than other democratic candidates it's certainly he has a stronger appeal to trump's you know, core voters that Hillary Clinton did. And they're going to have to, like, figure out um, what that's about. Um, what, what, what I think we'll learn here, though, quickly, is that um, the attacks on Biden will be um, tailored to key constituencies the president needs to turn out um, in key states that the president needs to turn out. So, for instance, Biden moving to the left on fracking, you know, is, is huge for Trump because... Western Pennsylvania has, has got to be, you know, a, a state that got to be a, a key area that Trump wins decisively. So you're probably going to hear a lot more about
2: that. And uh, for all the talk about who Joe Biden's running mate is going to be or might be, are people going to look at his running mate, and say, this is a, a woman, let's say, that uh, can lead the country if he uh, if and when he can't. Um, you know, still, it's just getting tough to get people to vote for the VP, isn't it? I mean, is that is that being overplayed?
5: um yeah i i think it is i mean it's more just it um it's another example in, in one way where biden is moving to the left i mean he's completely surrendered to identity politics um on this particular issue by announcing ahead of time that he's going to pick a woman you know obviously that may depend on on who the woman is if he picks amy klobuchar you know she has a genuine reputation as a moderate democrat who appeals to people in the midwest and and that'll be maybe a little bit harder to to make. But you know, if you pick, say, Stacey Abrams as his vice president, who's been thrown around a lot as a potential, you know, Democratic vice president, um, you know, she's very much more left-wing, more progressive, and you know, that will you know be a much clearer signal that he's sort of surrendered to identity politics.
2: He is Mark Hemingway, book editor at the Federalist, Federalist.com, former senior writer for the Weekly Standard. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Glad to be
3: here.
0: Seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
2: welcome back to the dan proft show uh dateline illinois illinois is central in the news over the weekend with respect to coronavirus two counts one is the story that went viral about Champaign, illinois that is the uh, home of uh, University of Illinois. I think I mentioned it last week. This uh, city council uh, declaration of uh, you know, a state of emergency within the community that was going to confer uh, all sorts of powers to the mayor and city council, special powers, including things like banning gun and alcohol sales, seizing property, sort of martial law at the local level. Had some people a bit concerned. So uh, the uh, city of Champaign and um, uh, the uh, mayor there, Deborah Frank Finan, said, hey, 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 we're we're not going to go banning gun and alcohol sales or seizing any property. Um, But uh, you can understand why there was concern, because that's essentially what the ordinance would have allowed the uh, local officials to do. Uh, You know, in times of crisis, beware of governmental power grabs just as a matter of course. Now, um, Illinois also central to the conversation over the weekend because um, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, as I term him, jelly belly because he is a one man mass gathering. He was on Meet the Press, uh, Meet the Press doing what uh, politicians from Illinois and Chicago do, bitch about other people so as to misdirect The nation's attention, as well as the Illinois families, the attention of Illinois families away from the actual performance of the political ruling class in this state and in the city of Chicago as well. Uh, J.B. Pritzker uh, had been complaining over the weekend about the influx of uh, travelers into O'Hare. Obviously, it's a hub. It's one of the nation's busiest airports. It's one of a dozen or so airports that uh, accommodates uh, foreign travel and uh, he was upset that there were so many people that came back and they weren't at the same time and they weren't screened uh, they didn't have the uh, the necessary Customs and Border Protection personnel to screen people expeditiously so uh, there were significant lines
1: which oh by the way is nothing new at O'Hare. I mean I have enormous respect for Dr. Fauci but that's just incorrect. We knew when the president gave the orders that uh, European travel back to the United States was going to be cut off, that there would be an influx of people, Americans and others, that would come uh, before the final cutoff. So what should have happened? They should have increased the Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, numbers and they should have increased the number of cdc personnel on the ground doing those checks they did neither of those so last night as people were flooding into o'hare airport they were stuck in a small area hundreds and hundreds of people and that's exactly what you don't want in this pandemic so we had that problem and then today it's going to be even worse there are a larger number of flights with more people coming and they seem completely unprepared
2: Mm -hmm. And uh, J.B. lamenting the lack of leadership from D.C.
1: Well, let me just compliment uh, uh, Governor DeWine and the other governors. We're the ones who've had to provide the leadership because the federal government just has fallen down on this. So they didn't advise us to shut down major events, sporting events, Mm -hmm. parades. We made those decisions on our own. They are not the ones that advised us to close schools. We made those decisions on our own. So we're on our own out here. I wish we had leadership from Washington. We're not getting it.
2: We're on your own out there, uh, or, you know, says J.B. Pritzker. Uh, $8 billion in aid moved uh, through Congress, uh, released by the president uh, prior to last week's aid package, and billions more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to the point that uh, we're not uh, as much as uh, Democrats in Chicago and Illinois would apparently prefer it, you know, we're not a command-control country. We're not China. As much as Tom Friedman over the New York Times would love it, we're not. And so we have a federalist system. We have power decentralized away from the central government. We uh, believe, generally speaking, in a secular way, about sub- uh, in subsidiarity, power closest to the people. And so decisions being made by Jelly Belly Pritzker in Illinois or Lori the Lightfoot in Chicago uh, may be similar to decisions made by other uh, blue state governors and mayors like in New York or California, uh, Washington, D.C., and may be different. For example, uh, at least at the time of uh, our discussion here, I don't believe uh, that the state of Mississippi has declared a state of emergency, one of a few states that has not. But, of course, coronavirus is affecting different states and different communities differently. And so politicians at the state and local level are making some different decisions. Obviously, not every city, not every governor of every state has done what governors in places like New York and Illinois and Ohio have, are doing, which is to shut down bars and restaurants or to severely curtail them. You know, not only allowing for takeouts and deliveries and the like. Not everybody's done that. So why should there be a federal directive? Hmm. Yeah, these are the kind of pushback uh, questions you don't get from uh, that yapping terrier Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, uh, who J.B. Pritzker was responding to in those clips that I played. No, this is this is on you in part. You get a lot of Medicaid dollars drop shipped to your state. All the states do. You get all this aid money. You have uh, the ability to scramble your National Guard, as Governor Cuomo did. You've got an additional aid package, whether you like it or not, that was moved through Congress on Friday. What what leadership? You need uh, Donald Trump to tell you whether or not to close your bars and restaurants or operate them at 50 percent capacity, which is what the city of Chicago is doing over the weekend into St. Patrick's Day prior to. The announcement that they would be closed at the end of business today. No. That's not the way it goes. So this is a way of pretending that you're playing uh, that you're being postpartisan. J.B. Pritchard complimenting Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, um, and uh, you're talking about people coming together while taking cheap shots at Donald Trump because it's a way to misdirect to Trump. And here's something that's going to happen in Illinois. And I'm sure it's going to happen in other states in different forms. But again, as we said at the outset with uh, uh, earlier in the show with Victor Davis Hansen, there is no downside for overreach, for power grabs, because all power grabs will be presented by politicians in this way. We're going to save untold lives, untold numbers of lives by doing what we're doing, regardless of the consequences of doing what we're doing economic or public health-wise. We're going to save untold numbers of lives. You'll never be able to disprove their claim that untold numbers of lives were saved. And they'll never really be able to substantiate it, but they'll talk about it sort of in vague generalities and get away with it because most of them are left and doesn't matter because the press corps, uh, whether in D.C. or their outposts around the country, are inclined to take the same command control perspective. In Illinois, there's an initiative on the November ballot to graduate the state's income tax. The last state to do that was Connecticut about uh, two decades ago, and look how well that's worked out for Connecticut. So that will be the Illinois play, and there'll be other plays in other states to raise taxes. That revenue hit, the result of the virus, so, and the economic damage it inflicted, so now we need to raise taxes. In Illinois, it'll be structure. In other, other states, it may be structural as well or temporary. But it'll be the upper opportunity for another power grab on top of these power grabs. Win-win-win for the central planners. This is
8: the Dan Proft. Come, let's mix where walk with sticks or umbrellas in the Putting on You're listening
0: to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. And in Sunday night's debate between uh, the Bolshevik and the Menshevik, this was, uh, boy, such a snoozer. This was sort of the highlight. This is what uh, the press took away from, the Beltway Press took away from the night, Joe Biden's uh, big reveal.
7: If I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president.
2: Yeah, look like the country. We've been hearing that since Joe Biden has been in the Senate. And uh, OK, fine. He committed to picking a woman to be for as VP. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Scott Powers, political journalist for FloridaPolitics.com, formerly with the uh, Orlando Sentinel and Columbus Dispatch. Maybe we'll ask him a little bit about Ohio, too. And as he describes, not me author of great, highly unsuccessful novels. Well, as long as they were great. Uh, Scott Powers, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: Thanks, Dan. I appreciate being on the
2: show. Yeah, trying to help get you discovered and so you can move those novels. We go. Um, so uh, Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, it basically, Biden is all but the nominee at this juncture. I mean, even according to Bernie Sanders, his whoever gets the most delegate should be the nominee. So that's Joe Biden is tracking to do that. He looks like he's going to crush Sanders in Florida. Uh, he's going to crush Sanders in my home state of Illinois. Uh, he's got double digit leads everywhere. And Sanders did nothing to change that last night. So now we're just looking at what that ticket might be and how uh, Joe Biden and woman to be named later will play in places like, well, Florida and Ohio.
8: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sanders obviously, uh, probably couldn't get 20% in a general election in Florida right now. So, so Biden at least has that great key vulnerability that, uh, that Sanders doesn't bring to, to this state. And, uh, Ohio probably is uh, is maybe more of a, a burning country because uh, it's just quirky that way, but uh, uh, yeah, if Biden comes through this and by all indication he is about to, but uh, uh, he'll, he'll make a good run michael.
2: Right? Uh, yeah, that's it's interesting because uh, Ohio, as much of a bellwether state it had been for so long, uh, was basically taken off the table by uh, Democrat super PACs and thinking about uh, the 2020 campaign. Do you think Biden can put it back on the table or are exchanges like he had with that uh, construction worker in uh, Michigan going to be terribly problematic?
8: Um, Yeah, I think he can. I mean, he does. He's got that working class, you know, background that he likes to talk about. And he talks about it well on the stump, frankly. You know, you know, the the woman with the guy in Michigan certainly uh, makes a lot of people uh, a little bit, uh, you know, nervous about you know what he remembers about that part of his life, but uh, um, uh, I think I think uh, you know, coming from central Pennsylvania, I think he's got a lot more in common with with the people of Ohio than he does uh, than, than certainly than Bernie Sanders would.
2: Well, sure, um, but when when it comes to I mean, and, and obviously the uh, coronavirus outbreak has sort of reshuffled the deck, and you know who knows what the world will look like tomorrow, versus much less eight weeks from now, much less right. eight months from now. But um, but, you know, sort of holding that harmless for the moment, just in terms of assessing a a Biden presidential uh, candidacy. I mean, uh, what are the big concerns you think that uh, the blue collar voters in Ohio would have that uh, some of the swing voters in Florida will have about Joe Biden?
8: Um, I mean, clearly some of the some of the uh, uh, divisive issues are still there. I mean, guns, for one, I mean. Biden, Biden tried to walk a fine line for a lot of years, but he, lately he's had to come down hard with the Democratic uh, uh, position uh, on uh, on gun reforms. That's not going to play well in uh, Ohio. It certainly isn't going to play well in lots of parts of Florida, although it will play well in uh, in the bigger cities of Florida. Um, you know, other other issues, you know, he uh, he's tried to walk fine lines on abortion. And he's tried to walk fine lines on a couple of the other issues that have not played well in those states um uh, on the other hand i think i think uh, one thing particularly in ohio and florida is you see a lot of people are uh um very frustrated with with the lack of progress toward health care reform uh to the extent that he can try to make that an issue you might you might do well uh
2: when we come back with uh, scott powers i want to talk a little bit more about uh about florida as well in the context of this being a census year and uh, with uh, Florida gaining congressional seats, like Texas gaining congressional seats, you know who uh, is populating those new congressional seats and does it have the potential to change the balance of power in some of those important states for Republicans, including President Trump in 2020? More with Scott Powers, political journalist for FloridaPolitics.com, right after this.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof., and this is The Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking with Scott Powers, political journalist for FloridaPolitics.com, formerly with the Orlando Sentinel and Columbus Dispatch, and again, author of great, highly unsuccessful novels. We'll have to get to a couple of titles to see if we can popularize them. Uh, Scott, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Florida. It's growing by uh, leaps and bounds. You're uh, scheduled to get a couple of more congressional districts after the 2020 census. Um, I'm a prospective future resident of Florida. I bought a place in Naples a couple of years ago. Um, Good for you. Yes. Thank you very much. So tell me, tell me what what's what, uh, what uh, the future holds for Florida, because, of course, when we have these conversations about migra- uh, migratory patterns of Americans say, well, yeah, Florida, Texas are growing. But it's a lot of people fleeing uh, blue states like, say, I don't know, Illinois. And uh, that's going to change the composition and perhaps political disposition of some of those states. Is that what you see happening in Florida or perhaps not so much so?
8: Believe it or not, what the, the preliminary census data I've been showing us is that Florida actually has been going more from overseas than it has from other states.
1: Mm, interesting. Um,
8: just just there's, when you include Puerto Rico as non-U.S. Uh, and, and you know, it obviously is America, part of America, but, but the census, for census uh, purposes, they include it as, as immigration instead of migration. And the immigration over the last 10 years has exceeded the migration to Florida. And a lot of that has been Puerto Rico. Uh, a lot of it's been Venezuela and, and some other countries that have seen a lot of people coming up here as well. But we have seen, uh, I've forgotten the numbers, forgive me, Dan, um, but but about a 5% advantage by, by immigration over migration into Florida. So you see areas, particularly the Orlando area where I'm at, uh, where there's been an enormous growth of Puerto Rican residents uh, and, and also residents from uh, from Venezuela and, and Colombia and, and some other uh, Latin American countries as well. Uh, yes, we're seeing a lot of people coming down still from Blue states, Illinois and New York, and, and still from the Midwest, Michigan and Ohio. There's, there's, there's always uh, new, new Michiganders and Ohioans showing up. Uh, but that's not really what's driving the growth of Florida right now. What's driving the growth of Florida is Latin American immigration and, and also from uh, country, countries like Haiti and, and Jamaica, which are technically not Latin American.
2: And so how does, how does that, uh, obviously, uh, 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 when you look at uh, Puerto Rico uh, as a territory, you look at uh, that's a Democrat stronghold. So you assume if there's more, a lot of Puerto Rican immigration or migration to Florida – that's advantage Democrats and maybe that's one of the reasons that uh, Andrew Gillum came as close as he did in in 2018 to Ron DeSantis
8: well I'd say yes to that question except that they really haven't been showing up to vote okay uh, all of the all of all of the uh, uh, tracking of uh, particularly in in the Puerto Rican uh, communities uh, have shown rather uh, low voting rates now you know every year the activists are saying, Oh, we're going to change. It. we just registered another 50,000 Puerto Ricans this year. We're going to make a difference this year. We've heard that three or four elections running, um, could happen. Uh, you, you never know. Um, uh, but you're absolutely right. There is a strong, uh, democratic lean to most Puerto Ricans coming to Florida and they, they now outnumber Cubans in Florida. Uh, Puerto Rican, uh, uh The community in Florida now has uh, slightly edged ahead of the Cuban uh, uh, community. So the dominant uh, Latino uh, group in the state right now uh, tends to be Democrat, not Republican, as the Cubans have always been.
2: Although it's it's always interesting, um, it's not so easy to uh, the the way the press sometimes talks about to say, well, this is the ethnic heritage, so this is the distribution of the vote, because there's differences among different ethnicities within the uh, umbrella of Latino, as you know. There's also differences in in voter and attitudes, first generation to second generation to third generation, and all these uh, different uh, groups as well. And so sometimes what you see is uh, people that migrate or immigrate to a, a place where maybe they're disposed to be left of that place. And they sort of assimilate to the political culture. And I think to some extent, you've seen that in places like Arizona and Texas, at least to the extent that they're open minded to a Republican like Greg Abbott or Doug Ducey, if uh, they feel like that Republican is serving their you know, particular economic and security interests.
8: You're absolutely right. And, and uh, the Puerto Ricans have come to Florida are generally more conservative than than the rest of the Democratic Party. Uh, But you also have some strange things that that keep happening as far as as the parties themselves. Uh, The last two or three uh, congressional races we've seen in Florida's District 9, which is a very Puerto Rican district, uh, Aaron Soto from uh, Kissimmee uh, uh, represents that right now. He's Puerto Rican and he's Democrat. Uh, The last two or three elections there, uh, fairly competent Puerto Rican Republicans have entered the primaries and gotten badly beaten by Anglo-Republicans in the primaries and then Soto come along and just destroyed the Anglo. Uh, and, and the problem there is, for Republicans, of course, is if they could potentially find a way to get a Puerto Rican Republican on the ballot against Darren Soto, they might have a real chance. Mm. Uh, but but they can't get them to the primaries.
2: Mm. Mm, Yeah, sort of the need to incorporate as part of your governing coalition. No, I get that. Now, now, as you look ahead to November, just to sort of restate, and since you have uh, uh, some experience in in Ohio as well, I mean, at at, at this stage, again, with the wild card of coronavirus uh, sort of set aside, ceteris paribus here, uh, do you see Florida and Ohio as both Trumps to lose or do you see them as toss ups? Where, Where do you see them?
8: I think Florida's a toss-up right now. Hmm. Ohio, I don't have as good a handle on as as, uh, as I'd like to have. Um, um, Mike Dewine seems to be running a bit of a more moderate position up there. Uh, I, I don't I don't have a read on Ohio, but but the polls in Florida have almost all come out within five points either way, and, and uh, uh, sometimes they've been five points in favor of Biden. Typically, five points in favor of Biden. Uh, but uh, but of course we don't we know from experience that those polls have been wrong a lot in the past so um, I'm going to call it a toss up at the moment.
2: All right, he is Scott Powers, political journalist for FloridaPolitics.com, formerly with the Orlando Sentinel and Columbus Dispatch, and author of great but highly unsuccessful novels. For now, uh, we, we keep keep writing those great novels, and uh, I'm sure you'll find commercial success at some point.
8: Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks Appreciate for
2: joining it. us, Scott. Appreciate it.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about all the various briefings, but uh, we've missed an important one, and that's the briefing from uh, Pam from the office on uh, you know, good hygiene and protecting the transmission of viruses.
4: I know a lot of us have been feeling under the weather lately, it's that time of year, and according to a study done by the University of Arizona, they discovered that your
9: keyboards have hundreds of times more bacteria per square inch than a toilet seat. I heard your mama has more bacteria per scrunch than a toilet seat. That's
1: true, that's true, I dated her mama. And you know what, sorry, I'm done. all right.
9: One of the simplest ways to cut down
4: on
1: the spread of germs is to use something called the vampire cough. Did, did you say vampire? Oh, no, it's just that if a vampire had to cough, he would do it like this. <coughs> uh-huh, right, and ruin their cloaks. Do you have any idea how expensive wool is in Transylvania? Because of the euro.
2: Well, other things you can do to help cut down on the spread of disease are if- to wash your hands regularly, don't come in if you're sick, oh. and get your flu shot. Also, I'm going to set up hand sanitizing stations around the office.
1: No, no, no. They will cost you your life. Elaborate. The worst thing you can do for your immune system is to coddle it. They need to fight their own battles. If Sabre really cared about our well-being, they would set up hand desanitizing stations. A simple bowl at every juncture filled with dirt, vomit, fecal matter. Not, Exposing I'm not, I'm not yourself to, to germs is the best that. way to make yourself stronger. So by that rationale, if I had to sneeze, I should just sneeze on you. Yes, I would welcome it.
2: <coughs> and Dwight true taking a contrarian position, but you... Uh, you understand, we're basically all on uh, the set of The Office these days. Uh, and a, a bit of a hopeful note, this from uh, Italy, a uh, number of, uh, of instances of this sort of thing went uh, viral over the weekend. Uh, the uh, Sirens of Siena on a, and th- this was beautifully shot, it was like something from a movie, uh, a... Uh, uh, empty cobblestone street and you just hear the voices coming from balconies <laughs> The dog didn't like it, but uh, a triumphant expression. I get those uh, gentlemen to an opera house. And also the Italian Air Force doing uh, some acrobatic skywriting in the Italian flag colors of green and white and red. Uh, you know, our uh, well wishes go out to the Italians, and we appreciate that, uh, that spirit of perseverance and fortitude in these difficult times. Thanks for joining us again on The Dan Prof. Show. Please do so
4: tomorrow.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof. Show.
3: You are fake news.